I can't tell you how good it is to be back here. Really? I've been dreading this moment for months. <laughs> <laughs> months? Months. Oh, my goodness. Well, it's so, good to see you. It's good to see you. I haven't, wasn't here last time. Um, if you didn't know, my name is Shiloh Jama. And I am Joe. I am here. I am excited. And if you didn't know, you were listening to KODX, a 96.9 radio. Yes, 321 Radio. So excited to be back here. Um, it has been a full month since we've been here. Um, I've got to say, every time... That happens when you do a once-a-month show. I know, I forget these things, though. Um, <laughs> i, I got to say, I, every time I hear our opening and I hear Kevin's voice, uh, my heart goes a little pitter-patter. I miss him, and I'm, I'm hopeful. Kevin, if you can hear me, um, come back, come back, come back, come back. Texas took him. Um, uh. So everything's bigger in Texas. You, you want to know something that's totally new in the neighborhood? What's new? There's a new museum. Not new old, but it's an old museum that got into a, a whole new building. You know, I think I heard a rumor about that. Yeah, it's a they wanted they put just threw it down the corner of the university um <laughs> um and it's the Burke Museum. And another secret it has dinosaurs. It is a beautiful museum, I will say. I had the pleasure of uh, touring it a couple, a couple few weeks ago. Um, I should say, full disclosure, um, I have an in with the museum. Okay. Uh, not that I'm a fancy big donor or anything, but I do have a, a hunk of a man that uh, happens to work there that also happens to live with me. Hey, Scott. Hope you're listening. Um, I... I missed the the grand opening, so I wasn't there the first day. Mm-hmm. But I got in there in this next that week, um, and I got to see something that I will never be able to unsee. Uh, uh, okay, <laughs> and that is a dissection of a Komodo jag- dragon. Ah, uh, they do have that dissection spot. Yeah, and yeah. it was all these teenage, all these young boys surrounding this window, and I was like, huh, I wonder what this is, and I'm like, huh. This is a skinless Komodo dragon. <laughs> I think when 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 I went, there were um, I think it was birds that were being dissected, uh, and they, it wasn't. It was a, in the evening, uh, so they weren't actively doing it. It was just parts that were out there for us to see. Yeah, and they have a whole First Nation section on the first floor. Yeah, it, it's a beautiful, beautiful museum. So, folks, um, our, our big fan base that is listening tonight. Uh, hey, Mother Tinsley. Hey, Scott. Uh, hopefully, Lisa, you're listening. Um, it is definitely something to put on your list of things to do, especially around the holidays when people, uh, especially kids, have time off. Um, it's a great place for the family to enjoy um, some educational things uh, as well as some scary things in terms of the dissection stuff. So they have really great dinosaur stuff. And they have some really great fossils. Um, they did have a section that they seem to have taken away. Um, what was that? Which was a lot of the rocks. Um, I know oh. it's not the most sexiest part of the museum, but they had some really kind of cool old minerals and stuff like that from Washington that, that I, I enjoyed in the past. Rocks um, can be sexy, diamonds uh, especially, if anybody's listening. Um, I have heard that they're rotating a lot of their um, exhibits too, um, and so maybe they'll come back. Um, so yeah, I think that it's a museum worth seeing, and it's... You know, paid for by your tax dollars, and so you should go and enjoy and um, uh, support the museum. And um, I think if you didn't know, let's say, the history of the totem, 
in downtown. Um, they have a whole section on where that um, history comes from, and I think the I, I enjoyed it in the sense that it didn't sugarcoat necessarily um, our let's just say theft of that um, the original one, but um, they also you know they talked about where it came from, a little amount of the history of um, the totems. And, you know, also talked about, um, and I really liked a lot about indigenous populations that are from um, the Washington area and the um, Puget Sound. And I also, you know, I thought it was a really great museum. There was, I, when I was there, there was still, I think, a section or two that wasn't quite open. Mm. Um, there were a couple of missing pieces, mm. I think, when, when I took the tour. But again, that makes it more exciting to, to go back. And see, yeah. all right, well, what, what are you going to put there? Um, and it totally fits in line with uh, a, a theme that is uh, ongoing with our show in terms of, like, supporting communities, supporting the businesses within your community, knowing what's in your community, uh, and learning a little bit more just about uh, Washington in general and Pacific Northwest. And the first Thursdays are three. What? Free. They're not three. They're free. Did, oh, yeah. So, um, Shiloh, you've been gone. I have been gone. You were gone last month. I was gone last month, but I was, uh, I was down at our Portland site working with, uh, so folks don't know, we have uh, a Portland site that is, does three days a week, um, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So the People's Harm Reduction Alliance is not just in this neighborhood. Nope. It's in lots of different parts of the community. Um, or lots of different kind of, that's why we're kind of a Cascadian organization, um, and but I did go, so uh, I did go on a little trip. I went down to Oaxaca, Mexico, Ooh. and I visited uh, Ibogaine Treatment Center. Um, Tell me more about that. What's that? And uh, Ibogaine is an hallucinogenic um, that people have been using um, to use to recover from opiates and other drugs um, in Canada and Mexico. Uh, U.S. has not legalized it yet. Um, there are some underground folks who have been doing it. Um, there was a Pacific court case um, in Seattle several years back. People who were trying to give an Ibogaine treatment to someone um, who was really a undercover agent. Um, and so, you know, but generally it's done in Mexico and it's a powerful hallucinogenic that kind of helps clear the mind and body and has had, you know some really big success stories um i think you know some of the data i've seen has been as high as 50 percent okay um and it's um but you know i think like anything it's not a standalone um it can it can really help you from what um people who've gone through it have told me it almost like resets their brain and resets their feelings and they don't have you know a desire to use like it's not like a need it, and they kind of and the hallucinogenic talks about like kind of seeing all of the past that of their you know life that they have maybe made mistakes with it also can bring up some trauma um and so it's one of those things that they <clears throat> they do need to have like uh you know 24 hours seven day a week kind of monitoring of you um i, I was just gonna say that sounds pretty intense to try to do that on your own so is it done in a it's done in a clinic setting yeah so and a clinic setting can be some places are very you know like 
what you would imagine a clinic to be in other settings are, you know, when I was there, it was like a, this nice little room. It's, you know, these two um, women who are doing some great work. Um, and they, and, you know, Pro's going to put a little thing on their Facebook page um, about it uh, here soon to talk about it. And, you know, we toured the facility. Um, we saw all the great work they were doing. They, um, these two women are very, uh, they very much care about um, people's success. Um, they're people who have long history of harm reduction and love and compassion. Um, they're in Oaxaca. Um, so, yeah, look for that on our, and the PRUS, uh, People's Harm Reduction Alliance's Facebook page. And I can do a link to it, um, to 321. Um, that would be good because we do have social media, though we're terrible about updating our social media for the radio show. Yes. But I do have a question. So, how long does this treatment last? Is it you're there for just a couple of days? Or? It takes about, oh, it depends on the person, it takes about a week, you know, to do. Okay. And it's, you know, um, and it, you, when you come out of it, you have no withdrawals. Wow. Like, you know, you have been, you know. You don't have the physical withdrawals. You no. don't have the sort of yeah. mental craving. Yep. And is that something that is used just strictly for opiates or other things? Yeah, I found that people use it for uh, lots of different addictive services. Um, and opiates seems to be one that it, a lot of people go to for it. Um so, and there's lots of different opinions and different theories, and I'm not an Ibogaine expert. Um, I know, I, I can tell you that I've had friends who've gone through it, and it has really positively changed their lives, and that they no longer, and it really, and the people that I find, this is just my experience, the people who I find really helps is like doing that plus some mental health services upon the return and, and really healing from trauma. Um, I think can be really um, helpful. And I think that um, I think the one thing I would recommend if you are ever interested in this is to do your homework because there it is can be in different areas of the world can be very unregulated. And so really and illegal uh, and well, some places are illegal and the places that we're stating aren't illegal. Right. Um, and so do your homework, find out you know, what their experience is, find out what their facilities are, talk to someone who maybe have gone through it before. Um, this totally fits in line with what we've talked about uh, in past episodes uh, where, you know, there's this whole idea that um, there's a one fix for everything. But what we know from what we know in the world is that there are a variety of different things that are out there that can help people doesn't necessarily it's not just a uniform thing so what might work for you may not work for me may not work for our station manager um, so having different options for folks uh, particularly if you're uh, making an informed decision and doing your research is really important yeah and um, you know I think there is some barriers I mean you since you can't like if you live in Seattle you can't really just show up to a clinic and take it here you have to get on a plane which you means you probably have need to pa get a passport um, gotta have is, money for that. Which gotta have money, and these things aren't cheap. And I began itself isn't a as it's very expensive. It's in West African um, medicine that um, comes from Africa, needs to be shipped, grown, and shipped over. So I mean, those are those are some serious costs. Um, but I think it can be very helpful for folks. Um, and there are people locally um, who I know do it. I mean, locally as in the United States. 
not necessarily Seattle um, proper, who I've heard gone through it. Um, so, but again, if you're doing it that, you are doing an illegal system. Not that you aren't doing illegal drugs. So, um, but right. you know, I think that's to be good. There is some danger if you have like liver damage. That's why you need to have kind of some blood work to be do it. And any place who doesn't ask for blood work, really, you should start questioning some of its um, health um, and safety. Because that can be kind of toxic for your liver. Yeah. Also for kidneys as well, or just the liver. Liver is the only thing I've heard of, but of course it could be kidneys. It could be lots of stuff. Again, not an expert in ibogaine. Um, so, but it was really cool seeing that facility. And you could see the women who run it deeply care about um, the people they are serving and trying to take care of. Um, and it's uh, Oaxaca is a beautiful place too. Um, so you know, from Mexico, mm-hmm. I went to the Drug Policy Alliance um, National Conference. And what is the Drug Policy Alliance? The Drug Policy Alliance is a national group um, dedicated to ending the war on drugs. um, And uh, has done, they've helped legalize uh, marijuana in several states. Um, They have been a huge advocate to ending the drug war and then stating how the drug war has actually played out in this country. um, And has been a big supporter of harm reduction services. and they they're one of the funders of the People's Harm Reduction Alliance, um, and so they and they have we a, like them <laughs> we like them and they have they do a national conference and I really like their conference because they they do a lot of like you know bringing in black churches, um, bringing in religious leaders, uh, bringing in activists, um, bringing in um, you know drug users of various different um, uses, uh, talking a lot about hallucinogenics and you know really talking about facts and really having also like racial discrimination conversations within the prison industrial complex really talking about who goes to prison for drugs so they and, go deep um and they you know it's a, a really great attended conference there's thousands of people who attend it um and this year um in one of the uh, kind of Pre, I don't, know, I don't know, it's not quite a pre-conference, but it was a constitutional convention for the National Urban Survivors Union, which is the... What, drug, I was, what is that? So the <laughs> Urban Survivors Union is the National um, Drug User Unions. Um, so a lot of drug user unions kind of came out of... Um, Vandu, for example, is a drug user union in Vancouver. It helped start um, the first safe injection facility. Um, so when you say a drug user's union... I, I'm auto, automatically thinking, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm thinking of like like the plumbers union where everybody that's a plumber is in this union or like the union for IT people that may work at yeah, an organization. And so, is um, that sort of the same line? Like, what does that look like? Similar. So, like, there's the term union, um, and, you know, there was there was the kind of this concept of network union. What is the best thing that describes drug users organizing together to better their life and their services, right? Okay. Um, so Springfield, Massachusetts, um, to my knowledge, had one of the first drug user networks, union, alliances, whatever you kind of want to describe that. Um, 
and it was drug users who kind of banded together to help get the syringe exchange passed in, in Springfield, right? Okay. And, and organized to that through, and, you know, most drug user unions have active drug users to people in recovery um, in their structures and their, and their leadership, and it's people who are most affected by the drug war engaging in decision-making for policy. So, so about changing policies that negatively affect the folks that are, are yeah. actively are using drugs. Yeah, and so um, Vocal um, New York uh, was kind of a drug user union, um, which, you know, I know people know we have Vocal Washington for folks, you know, so we have Vocal Washington, Vocal New York. Um, we also have the San Francisco Drug User Union, um, which is advocated for safe injection facilities in San Francisco. Um, and we had User United. Um, that was another New York-based user uh, network. Um, we had the Urban Survivors Union. The Urban Survivors Union was actually started in Seattle um, by myself, and Courtney Chaos, and Gary Lee Smith. And we kind of formed in this kind of concept of, you know, we felt that the drug users' voices weren't being heard um, and that we wanted to create a system where drug users could, one, be empowered um, and understand that they could be their own lobbyists and they could be their own advocates and they didn't need to wait for people who didn't, uh, you know, don't really understand what's happening on the ground and make try to pass these laws. I mean, some of the, a big moment I think of um, change was when we, we were talking about naloxone in Washington and people kept talking about, you know, we need this good Samaritan law. And, you know, I think a lot of drug users are like, no, we, we need naloxone. Like the good Samaritan law is nice and all. And I'm not saying, and I'm not attacking the good Samaritan law, but what we need is legalized naloxone that anyone can have right now on the street without barriers, right? Mm -hmm. And I think people fought really hard to get the Good Samaritan Law. And, you know, if drug users were really focused on it, they would have been pushing more for making sure Narcan could be in everyone's hands, right? And again, not attacking the Good Samaritan Law, but I just want to be clear. On the ground, when the Good Samaritan Law passed, you know, and places like the People's Harm Reduction Alliance and King County Public Health, started to explain to drug users what the what the protection was, most people had the perception that they actually had way more protection than they actually had, mm. right? And so you were explaining to people that you actually have gotten this protection, but it's less than you actually thought you existed before we even passed the law. Um, and so, you know, for me, it's really about the legal, getting the legalization of naloxone into people's hands. Which we have now, and Naloxone is uh, readily accessible through organizations like People's Harm Reduction Alliance, and people can get it without a prescription at most uh -huh. local pharmacies. Yeah, and but it, you know, it was a long road, and you know, it took a lot of drug users really advocating for this before people, it was like a sideshow to the Good Samaritan Law. Because sometimes I feel like drug policy places, they focus too much on the, the win, or the perceived win, but doesn't necessarily make sense, you know. I won't name the state, but there's a state that fought really hard to get uh, naloxone in low-income folks' hands, and they said every house could have naloxone except for anyone who got government assistance. 
and they're like, oh, this is a big win. And you're like, <laughs> you've just literally locked out the entire poor population right. of, of this community. And to this or lobby organization, they were like, hey, we won. The drug users, like, you literally sold us out. Right, because the folks that needed, uh, that could potentially need it the most yeah. were now excluded from having it. Yes. Um, and so there's where some of this comes from. And so some of the Urban Survivors Union history, um, so I, I was the first chapter president, um, but I haven't been chapter president in years. Just, uh, just to pause for a second. So where were you in terms of the... Um, like, were you guys the first to start or sort of modeling after other cities that had started before? We were not the first to start. Um, to give but, context. So we started roughly in 19, or sorry, 2009. And, Ten years ago. And, you know, really could, took off the ground in 2010, right? Um, so... Um, <coughs> Um, Springfield User Union or User Network had already come and gone. So, you know, you could argue they were the first. Um, and then Vocal um, was uh, around before, because I think they're like 25 years or something. I would have to, I, I have to look again. Um, don't quote me on dates. I'm a little old No now. fact checkers uh, <laughs> in our audience. Yeah. So um, we're good. <laughs> so, not uh, the debate. Vocal... <laughs> And then we started around the time San Francisco Drug User Union started. And then I don't know when User United. But just so we understand today, there's, you know, roughly somewhere between 30 and 50 drug user unions or networks in the United States today. And not just in blue states, but in very much red states. Um, the South is one of the big places that has them. I mean, for example, West Virginia has a good, great uh, user um, union, and so does North Carolina. Which kind of so, makes sense if you think about it, yeah. right? Uh, the, the I, I would think the redder the state, the more punitive the laws might be around drug use or drug paraphernalia and, and you know, uh, really um, harsh laws for folks that, that get caught with drugs or using drugs. So having a strong network to advocate for policymakers to change that so that it's uh, less punitive and decriminalizing some of that activity. Yeah, and I think there are, um, and I think a lot of places uh, start advocating for syringe exchange as drug users, right? And so there's a lot of places that have no syringe exchange, and that's their first big project, mm -hmm. right? Um, so... We were never necessarily designed to be a national drug user in the beginning. That was not, it was really going to be a Seattle thing. And we were going to have, but we thought about having chapters for Washington, you know, to have, you know, the idea of like maybe the Yakima and, you know, Ellensburg or Bremerton kind of user, Urban Survivors Union. Tequila. Uh, Tequila. Um, but then there was um, Isaac Jackson, um, who is not a founder, but is really kind of, you know, emotionally, a lot of the founders see him as a founder. Um, he was in San Francisco, and he asked to be a chapter of the Urban Survivors Union, which really changed the course of drug user-run history, that request, um, because it meant that the, for the first time in U.S. history, a single drug user union would be in two cities and two states and, and really changing the way things play out. 
because they would just be sharing membership or they would be coming together to work uh, on similar projects on and so like together and so you know uh and we started creating a board of like folks from san francisco and folks from uh seattle and once that happened it was really interesting um and it's the history development of this is so it was all designed to have these chapter systems and the reason i keep talking about this is i'm going to get to the end where um you know at the drug policy lens conference we're starting to rewrite the constitution and we met uh, louise vincent in um 2013 at the denver uh, conference and in denver a little drug user history um was they the all the five unions that i've discussed all came together to create an alliance with each other um and created the United States Alliance of Drug User Unions. Um, and it was a design to create a thing so we could do national policy, do things. But remember, these are only five groups, right? Right. Oh, and I totally spaced one uh, that came in after um, the other four is the New England uh, User Union. Um, and next month, if you know people are interested, the uh, founder and executive director will be in Seattle visiting um, so maybe I'll try to convince her to pop on the radio show. Um, that would be fun. And to uh, um, talk. And so we, with the, uh, you know, and I, and so those five unions really got together to create that. Um, but remember, you still like five unions compared to all of this. Um, and then, you know, over time, that system, you know, I don't want to say eroded, but that, that the system, it didn't, uh, you know, it wasn't really good at bringing new pe groups in. <clears throat> it was very one of those things of like the, uh, we founded it so we get to stay in the club, right? <laughs> kind of uh, movement. It needed a little bit of new blood. Yeah. And so we took that vision um, and started doing a, you know, kind of conference call with drug user run groups. And so... Here's where I know we're getting a little in the weeds. So People's Harm Reduction Alliance is drug user run, mm -hmm. but it's not a drug user union. Um, and so I think those need to be, and, and direct service drug user groups didn't necessarily fit into the United States Alliance of Drug Users because that was much more policy driven. So right? one is a direct service um, organization the other is strictly working on policy yeah. though the policy affects the direct yeah. service so yeah same family different branch yeah and so they would communicate a lot but they weren't really in this like building strategy and so one of the things that was starting to develop in these these national calls that we started two years ago is there were lots of groups who were drug user run that were direct services and and things like you know as urban survivors union um then gained a chapter in Greensboro, North Carolina, the first red state uh, drug user union chapter. That's a win. Um, and then we got a second chapter in North Carolina, right? And then we got lots more requests. And then there became this little tweak. There were drug user groups who said, hey, we're our own thing. We already have our own name. We have our own policies. We have our own constitution. But you seem to be the national group. How do we connect to you? Because we want our voice to be heard and we think we're better and stronger together. 
Mm-hmm. So what does this look like to have an affiliate, right? And what does it look like to have, you know, to have that transfer? So we have these all these talks and people are like wanting to engage, right? And, you know, we start realizing that, you know, there are people who want to work and be part of the Urban Survivors Union because we have a good reputation. We have, you know, we are, people take us seriously. We've got some history. We've got some hi- history. And so, you know, and we'll, we started getting groups of saying, hey, you know, this program is, or this state uh, legislature is very discriminatory. This system is being very bigoted. Can you write a letter from the national group saying, you know, um, that we, you need to listen to our little group? So we started doing that. And then we realized, like, you know, we're working with all these groups. They should have a voice in our institution, right? And so, you know, part of this change in government system is getting people voices, right? And kind of changing this idea of chapters. Because also, like, you know, things like the Seattle chapter and San Francisco chapter, you know, we don't necessarily need to be part of, we can get our own 501c3 and get our own funding source locally. And we can be, you know, we don't necessarily have to be part of the same house, but we can still be completely allied together, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, you know, and it's this evolution, like, and so Urban Survivors Union has really been trying to help develop more and more drug user unions and so now we have more and more networks and more and more power and i think you know for a great example is west virginia closed one of their needle exchange programs um and the urban national urban survivors you went down and did a huge protest day um and um i think you really got to see the power and there were drug users from all over the country and there were needle exchanges who donated supplies from all over the country to give syringes to West Virginia drug users who had lost their program. And for me, I felt like we have a sea change in the sense that drug users are not only looking after drug users uh, in their community, but they're intentionally giving up supplies and, sur- and time of, from their community to give to another drug using community. And I do really feel like we have, in that sense, I feel like we have incredible positive change in this country. Um, and we're getting more and more groups uh, of support, like, you know, um, you know, Mothers Against the Drug War and um, lots, you know, Families for Sensible Drug Policy and, you know, all of these different groups who are starting to want to work with us and starting to create this you know powerful movement and i you know it's started in in, in this uh methodist church these three drug users who wanted to make a difference in their community um and now is this huge national movement it is amazing to think like something so small um and so local could blow up to be national a national movement yeah um and really help um support and give voice to to folks that don't have that in their community um which again sort of ties into what we're always talking about in terms of you know fostering community not only in your local community but also embracing the larger community that we all live in um so what you said at this particular conference that you just went to you were working on your constitution 
Yeah, so it's the, the idea of, you know, like concept of changing that so affiliates can have votes. And, you know, because if, if people know what the, um, you know, they're in the union and labor union movement, they have groups that are kind of a united version of them, like lots of little labor groups all together. You know, like the AFL-CIO has Teamsters and it has all these different labor unions in there and become are their own political labor force. And so that's what the Urban Survivors Union is, you know, developing uh, after and doing lots of work. Uh, you know, it's it's not fully written, so there's a thousand different things that could change and happen. Um, and with so many different uh, affiliates um, sort of involved, I'm just curious about what that process looks like, right? You're bringing so many people to so the table. We, so we in that, that Who meeting, gets heard? Yeah, so in that <laughs> meeting, we... It's expected to get 25 people. Okay. Right? 67 showed up. Ooh. Okay. Um, and I was supposed to print 25 shirts. I printed 50. And Smart to think I had. And uh, I had to, this was a little, I, we just didn't have enough shirts. Right? And I remember, like, if you ever talk about, like, the most unpopular moment, um, you know, and they literally were like, Shiloh, you're the founder. You get the box of shirts. You dish them out. <laughs> And so I just went to each table and I said, hey, uh, anyone at this table who's done five years organizing and working in drug user movement, please put raise your hand up because you're getting a shirt. If you're new, unfortunately, you'll get a shirt in ne next conference. Or you'll get a shirt in four conferences. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, That's the incentive to stay. Yeah. And so I got a whole bunch of people with shirts. Um, and, you know, it was for me, it was this really beautiful moment to see that drug users were empowered in their lives and fighting for justice for other drug users and building that strong network and community and really fostering this change. And I do have to say, like, you know, that the drug users are becoming a force to be reckoned with in politics. And they're starting to... In a positive to way. In a very positive way. And I think they're starting to influence government institutions. You know, there are there are health departments that are not doing science-based service when it comes to drug users. And drug users are holding their feet to the fire and saying, you have to do science-based service. So, you know, I don't care about your morality, but if this system, let's say syringe exchange... Uh, our syringe programs, if this program isn't being efficiently run by the theory of science and education, then you need to do this. If fentanyl is hitting your community and you're not talking about fentanyl testing and education on that, then you are failing, right? If you're putting, you know, undue restrictions on accessing your program, you know, then you are failing. And it's not just happening you know, in one city, it's happening in many cities, it's happening in the rural community. Um, and, you know, I think it, you know, for me going to this conference, one thing I realized is there's a whole Southern revolution of harm reduction happening. Um, and you would be surprised in small communities in Kentucky, in Alabama, you know, Louisiana, there are programs coming up run by drug users to serve drug users. And it is really powerful. 
and really hearing the problems that they're facing and really also seeing their the, the way they're they're facing those problems head on and engaging them and changing the conditions of around you know i mean i at this conference there are people with mass spectrometers that are testing drugs and telling drug users what is in their substance and imagine that power you know think of this locally so if you could come up to the people's harm reduction alliance and test your drug and you could say your drug is this let's say it's two percent heroin and 98 percent other Aren't you going to go back to your dealer and say, what the hell did you just uh, <laughs> sell me? Um, right. And so you essentially are getting your own customer, you know, review. Right. The, uh, Yelp will be going crazy with that. Yeah. Right? <laughs> um, and, and I think this is something that's going to be really powerful is that knowledge and that information. I mean, we had a, a whole section, I remember this uh, at a previous conference, where someone connected to the Urban Survivors Union was showing drug users how to read a study and showing them what like the important questions you should be asking and the data how many people were in it all this stuff and you know to think about that empowerment for drug users mm -hmm. um and you know i you know you start realizing you know even as a founder i start realizing that you know sometimes i feel like the dumbest person in the room <laughs> <laughs> well that yeah. that's kind of that's kind of the cherry on top right yeah. like where okay i started this but everyone else has taken it to this level. Oh, yeah. And now it's this high and, and this much engagement. And just speaking, you know, when you were talking about the, the, the Southern movement, I think a lot of people, I think I will speak for myself, you know, I think of the coasts, right? Like, oh, the West Coast, the East Coast, they're doing all this innovative work. They've got all this funding. They're supported by CDC, blah, 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 whatever, whatever. But... There is something to be said for the folks that are, are in the middle of the state that, are, that don't have those resources, don't have that support, but have that drive and that ambition to make a better change and to become a collective to push that policy. Yeah, I think I, that's very inspiring. I mean, yeah, I mean, there was a time in my career that, yeah, it was very much the coast. And then you have places like in Tulsa, Oklahoma, creating like a beautiful center and really trying to do really great beautiful harm reduction to their community i you know one of my mentors you know becky brooks was from tulsa and did a neo exchange but she you know and i i mean this with the most utmost respect was a crazy biker right? <laughs> like you know delivered syringes on her harley right you oh. know and like you know and so to see her town now have a thriving needle exchange because of drug users and because of people fighting to make better lives for drug users. I mean, that, I mean, that makes me really proud to be part of this community and really, you know, humbling in the, um, seeing what we can accomplish together. Right. And I think, you know, we, we have, I think sometimes we forget, um, that, you know, we sometimes, critique too much of systems and we need to figure out what, what instead of talking about the problem let's talk about the solution right right what's the end goal what's the end goal you know if and i think it's something that seattle can learn poverty poverty is a problem in here in seattle in seattle what? so what is the solution how do we make it so 
people aren't homeless in our community, right? And how do we make it sure that people get proper health care? Um, people get the love and caring they deserve. And get appropriately treated for their health care in, in, in competent, culturally competent ways so it's not stigmatizing. Yeah, and so how, um, you know, and telling someone where they can't go, less helpful. Telling right. them where they can go is super helpful. And being welcoming in that. Yeah, and reminding people that, you know, interactions, you know, there's a lot of trauma in this city, in this community. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, and let's, for me, I, like, I really want to get away from the politics of, you know, left, right, and get into, like, how can we make our city better? How can we make our community better? And it's happening in a thousand different ways, you know? There are, you know, like, there in this neighborhood, there are shops that close for Thanksgiving but open up their doors for a free meal for folks to come in and eat, right? There are people who open up their doors... Um, for Christmas, you know, um, you know, I, like just as like the big time brewery is a great example for the big snow days that happened uh, last year. You know, they never closed and they, they, you know, came in and you had there was food, food there for folks who were hungry. And you could go in there and have a little warm spot and talk, you know, and, you know, people don't know that like, like Rick, the owner drove his staff. <laughs> to and from work each day because they were so far out and, you know, didn't know if they could make it. So he just went went and picked them up, right, to make sure his shop was going to be, or his place was going to be open and welcoming for folks in the neighborhood. With it, And just an aside, if any of my staff are listening, I will never do that. Um, you don't want me to. I'm not a snow driver. I would kill us. It would be terrible. Continue. So. <laughs> just put in that out there. Uh, but um, again, I, I compassion think, by Joe. <laughs> but again, I, I think it all it, it, the, the the theme that runs through our 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 show, I think, so um, completely is this idea of community and supporting each other and and coming together as a collective to make a greater good. And it sounds like the Urban Survivors Union is a great example of that. Um, not only on a on a small three person local level but just the power of what that can do on a bigger grander scale nationally yeah and i think you know for me like um i mean people forget like a shelter is harm reduction right you know a seatbelt uh, is a, harm reduction a seatbelt is harm reduction you know um the label and, on your cheetos harm yeah. reduction i mean you know health departments were created um because Things were unhealthy in this country, right? <laughs> and, you know, like, as much as I'm not a sometimes can be, uh, like, I'm a true Seattleite, not necessarily a huge fan of governmental institutions. Mm. Um, but, you know, I'm super happy that there's an inspector to make sure that the restaurants I go to is not poisoning me, right? Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of making sure that the building codes are enforced therefore my building won't collapse upon me that the roads are safe <laughs> to drive on yeah right? like um <laughs> all so, these things yeah um and you know i think you know it's not perfect but i think if I, I encourage people to engage their government engage their system and also 
the most powerful thing I think you can do, and they've, there's actually a study that came out that said you're typically more happy, you're happier and healthier um, for folks who volunteer. Um, mm. And, you know, I encourage people to volunteer, regardless if you volunteer for the People's Harm Reduction Alliance. Um, I know public health departments have volunteer nurses that do mm-hmm. great uh, work. I know schools can always use volunteers for like after school uh, programs or reading with kids or helping kids do math. Like there are so many opportunities. And I agree with you. I think volunteering is probably one of the the best experiences, particularly for any of our young uh, listeners out there. Um, if you're thinking about going into a field, if there's a way that you can volunteer into that to get that experience to see like, is this a really good fit for me or whoa, I was just kidding, I don't want to work with kids ever, <laughs> um, which was my college volunteer experience. Um, but it really gives you an idea and a, and a snapshot into like, okay, well, if this is something that I am passionate about or, or think I'm passionate about, can I do this in a safe way, right? Like, okay, I'm a volunteer, so I don't have that much responsibility. So I'm going to be here, but I'm going to be seeing and watching and learning to get that experience of like, yeah, I want to be able to do this. And I want to get the education and the skills and the tools to pursue this. Yeah, I mean, this is a a volunteer radio station. Like the people who are speaking do not get paid. They do this because they, they love their community. And I, you know, I love coming here and talking and, you know, some of the times we sit um, and say, you know, what, what we should talk about, what have we not, um, you know, talked about before, what are some of the issues that are facing the city? I think, you know, those are fun uh, thought experiments. Oh, right? yeah. Well, I think it just sort of bonds us more to the city and the community because it's like, all right, well, what haven't we talked about? Well, we haven't talked about this. We haven't talked about that. And we can plan a whole show around one sort of thought over uh, a mocktail, because I know Mother Tinsley's listening and she knows I don't drink, um, over at Flowers. Um, yeah, and, you know, just on a total, like, random note, we are champion sounders. And I didn't I didn't throw that out in the beginning to get scare people away. That's right. <laughs> the the um, football team, um, that's, they call it football everywhere else, but it's soccer here, won the... National championship. The big game. <laughs> um, and there was a parade downtown. Yes. 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 So only the, just that. so we're clear for all those Mariners fans, you, you're the next ones up. You got to do something here. Go team, go. <laughs> and yes, that's all I'll say about the sports stuff because I can't really. Get yeah, that's all I'll say too. <laughs> I, um, I just feel like, you know, sometimes we, we, we throw stuff out in the beginning that's random. I figure we got to throw something in the middle. I like that. I do want to check in. Um, you know, I know that there were, besides the um, soccer people, who I've already forgot their names, Sounders, uh, besides them winning, there was also elections, local elections. There was. We had been sort of talking about uh, local politics in the U District. Um, how did how did all that fare? What happened? Um, well, uh, Scott lost, which I figured he would. Um, I can talk a little more about this. I find that he really didn't engage the U District neighborhood. Um, we're and, not talking about Scott Bayo from Charles in Charge. No, oh, okay, no. I was just trying to be funny. Sorry. Okay. Yep, right over his head. Yeah, I was like, <laughs> who is he talking about? If you could have seen Shiloh's face, uh, <laughs> it was fun. Okay, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, and so um, you know, and I, I think um, I was sad that Pugil lost. 
I was sad about that as well. Um, yeah. So, and I still think that, um, you know, I think he's done a great for the city. Um, Good man. And I think he changed my opinion of policing in the city. Um, and he really did. You know, I know there's some people who like him and, and dislike him, but I really feel like he he tried really hard to get um, the community to engage the police. Um, and, you know, I remember in a meeting with him years ago where he told me that, you know, police don't make neighborhoods safer. Communities make neighborhoods safer. And, you know, we, you know, we're not the country that can put an officer on every single corner. Right. And we don't want to be that country. No. Yeah. Right. Um, so I, you know, it'll be interesting how the new city council plays out. Um, um, Swant pulled it off. You know, I was surprised. We got um, a lot of mailers at our house um, for Egan. Uh, and I shouldn't say we. Um, they were all pretty much the majority were addressed to Scott. And I think it was maybe the last week or so um, that they started to be addressed to Scott and Joe. And I was like, oh, finally, I, my vote matters to you. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. And they were the big, uh, glossy ones. Can I ask a question? Yes. So since you brought up... Wait, um, who are you? This is Mike. I normally just run the board and stay here in the background, but um, and, I and crawled out of my little box... Station manager. Yeah. So um, Mike is also the person who constantly looks dirty, looks at us, um, and says how you are all failures in my eyes. And he, he laughs at my jokes, looks. which makes me want to tell more jokes. So I'm sorry, audience. Okay. It's Mike's fault. You're, you're really we're <laughs> the audience of one here. Okay. Yes, so you brought, you brought up Jim Pugil. I wanted to get your view on. Um, I had the impression that he was publicly against safe injection sites. So in he, he was uh, in his wording, um, I'm quoting him. Uh, I just won't be a direct quote, um, but he had stated that because um, the legal fights would be so intense and so costly, they were not. Um, they was not feasible right now, right? And it didn't seem like we should waste all these resources in doing them. Um, so he was on the heroin task force. Mm -hmm. um, I don't remember. I, I think he voted yes for uh, safe consumption room, but I, I uh, uh, our shells, but I don't remember exactly. Um, I don't remember the vote, specific meeting. But the majority well. of the task force voted for, and he was on that task force. Um, so was uh, Durkin, just so we're clear. Um, she was representing at that time the or the ninth district, right? Um, a turn. Uh, I believe you. Are yeah, correct. and so she was on that task force, and she was even on that subcommittee for the consumption space. Um, so she knew everything that was happening. Now she wasn't the mayor yet. Correct. Um, and so we can't really hold the two things. We can't hold her feet to the fire because there were two separate. She was there as a a witness and, and really there to say, hey, um, as we talk about these things, are you going to, like, shut us down the next day, right? And she seemed to have been very Durkin in the sense that she didn't play her cards, um, didn't really state one way or the other. And 
<clears throat> and said, and I think she had said something that Obama's administration, you know, like that basically they were listening, but they hadn't made any, they hadn't made any decisions yet at the time, which I actually probably believe um, because, you know, the real kind of politics came of that post-election. Um, so, and there are some Democratic candidates who support safe consumption spaces, um, and but not any Republican candidates to my knowledge. Um, I doubt it. Um, <laughs> so, um, and, and speaking of politics, there's a, a, a debate, a presidential debate going on this evening uh, that we are missing. With the 30,000 Democrats running? I think it's 30,002. I just heard that someone just came out and was going to run now. Uh, Mayor (laughs) Bloomberg, I think he's putting his head, or he's testing the waters. And then there's, um, oh, I'm forgetting his name, Devil Patrick. Yeah, um, I got got an email that's... also doing it. I got an email from a, um, uh, when I was out of the country that says, Hillary Clinton has put her hat in. (laughs) It was obviously a fake email, but it was like, it was just like, I was like, you know... um, Here we go again. Yeah, I was like, you (laughs) know... Oh, Lord. um, So, um, yeah, I think they're... I think politics... How do I say this? I think in Seattle, politics is playing that game of changing but staying the same, right? It's putting a new coat of paint on it. Yeah, I mean, like, the idea that corporations didn't influence our government... um, for the last many decades. Mm. I mean, we've like people forget that this was a Boeing town and name a, a Seattle politician that was anti Boeing, right? Um, and would come out to attack Boeing. I mean, just it just didn't happen, right? And then to say that, you know, and I agree that more money has, the concentration of money has coming in. And I agree that Bezos and Amazon has clearly put their hat in the ring and, and had a particular slant right um they, yeah they put their balls down on sixth avenue yeah <laughs> so to speak yeah yeah um so i you know i think that i think you know i i encourage people to always look i think there are also a lot of great candidates most of which lost that were that really kind of tried to come from a, a community um centric and really had some issues um and i think that um they got their voices heard. Though. They got their voices heard. I mean, I pity anyone going to politics today because it is brutal. I couldn't do it. Um, a lot of people, I, I will tell a personal story. Um, in high school, I didn't do very well. And Mother Tinsley, shout out to you for listening, um, had to go to quite a few uh, parent-teacher conferences. And most of my professors that were on the fence of failing me would tell her that, uh, you know, Joe would make a really good politician. And after probably the third or fourth time that she heard that, um, she told me about it and said, I'm not sure if I should take this as a good thing or a bad thing. And I said, it's definitely a good thing. Like, don't, don't, please don't ground me. Like a politician would say. (laughs) Please don't ground me. (laughs) But yeah, I don't think these days, I mean, it's just too, people are fighting too dirty. It's, it's, it's more, um, less about like the real substantive issues and more, and I'm thinking sort of national politics. Um, and more about just party affiliation, and it's just it seems so gross and dirty. Well, I mean, I mean, I think um, I think it got really confusing because I think there were candidates who were 
you know, considered very left who are very supportive of upzoning, which would, you know, really kill a lot of small businesses in this community. And I think their particular left candidate who ran this time, who talked very supportively of the upzoning. Um, and so I think there was a lot of people who were in this neighborhood who did not, who don't support the upzone and feel like that the neighborhood hasn't really been involved in this conversation. You know, I think, you know, people don't know they're talking about closing 43rd Street, you know, without really the community's in input, the community's investment, the community engaging it. And I think, you know, if the community was given the choice, I think there would be, you know, maybe a street or two that would end up getting closed on um, places that can be pedestrian friendly. But the, if you take that away from the citizens and you kind of play that old Seattle corruption game, it doesn't really play out. So I encourage people to engage everything and i really encourage people to um whoever you voted for hold whoever got elected's feet to the fire mm -hmm. and make them um solve seattle's problems and don't do what seattle politicians do and say and say you know we'll have a vote on that five times to see you know how it'll all play out right. um i think we really do need to um you know really start solving problems and let's, you know, keep these people to solve problems. Um, Joe, you want some last words? I do. I, you know, we are in the month of the November, um, which is, uh, there's that holiday, the Thanksgiving. Um, so I would like us to end on a positive note and say one thing that we're thankful for. Would you like me to go first or would you like to go first? I am thankful that the Sounders are the MLS Cup champions. And I am that. thankful that um, a participant of mine who I've loved for many years um, got housing um, this month and has lived on the streets off and on for 15 years and now is um, can have a Thanksgiving inside in a warm place. That's huge. Um, and I think that it, I couldn't ask for a happier um, event for them. I that is I cannot top that. So I will say that I am thankful um, for this lovely radio station um, and for KODX 96.9 um, and for the opportunity to have a voice within the community. So um, I encourage everyone to go to the website of um, www.kdoxseattle.org. Um, and if there's an opportunity to give money, you should give money to the radio station so that we can stay open. And uh, I'm also thankful that Mike actually finally said something. I know. I, I didn't know what to say. The I, hand I went up and the button got pushed and then I heard a voice. I know. I, we have to tell Lisa that we were here when. She's going to be so jealous. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. No one's going to believe you. Because <laughs> no one listens. <laughs>